Welcome to the world of critical care. Today we're going to be discussing packed red blood cells. This will be the first episode in a four-part series on the most common blood products administered in critical care. After today's episode, we'll discuss fresh frozen plasma, platelets, and then cryo. Red blood cells can be quite challenging to comprehensively look at in 20 minutes. There's such a wide variety of topics that get discussed as we talk about the process of deciding to administer packed red blood cells, the administration process, and then the potential complications afterward. But I hope today, whether you've been in the ICU and critical care for a long time, or you're just taking those first steps, that you're able to take something away from today's episode that you can apply in your clinical practice. So as a brief refresher, what are red blood cells? Our red blood cells are often called our erythrocytes. Erythro is just a Greek term for red sites cells. These are produced in the bone marrow, typically around seven to 10 days. They have a lifespan about of 100 to 120 days. And then after that, our body will dispose of them by macrophages. Now the red blood cells are unique in that they do not have a nucleus, there's no DNA, and there's no organelles. So because of that, we have a very large cytoplasm. Now in this cytoplasm, we're able to store a large quantity of hemoglobin molecules. In fact, red blood cells can often hold up to 270 million hemoglobin molecules. These red blood cells packed with hemoglobin molecules are able to circulate around our complete circulatory system, typically within about a minute. As these cells move through the circulatory system in the capillary beds, they're able to deform their shape and move in and out of our capillary beds, allowing for the critical role that hemoglobin plays in the release of oxygen and the somewhat diminished but also important role in the removal of CO2. Now, when we think about our red blood cells, we need to consider the percent of total blood they comprise. Typically, red blood cells are around 45% of the total blood percentage, and this is known as the hematocrit. Now, consider when you draw a complete blood count. This is typically in a lavender tube with EDTA. When this tube is sent to lab, lab will, will spin the tube in a centrifuge and we get the separation typically into approximately three layers. At the bottom of the tube, you're going to see the red blood cells. That is the hematocrit. Just above that, you usually see a small little layer called a buffy layer. Now this small layer will be comprised of your platelets and your white blood cells. Just above that will be our plasma. The plasma percentage is typically comprised of things like our water and our proteins and our nutrients and our hormones. Now for men, typically the hematocrit ranges from 41 to 47%, but of course every lab is a little bit different and everyone's unique clinical condition is a little bit different. Women typically range from 36 to 44%. It's important to understand that lab values can be affected by a wide variety of conditions. So we could think of dehydration, we could think of hemodilution. And so it's really critical, whether you're a bedside nurse, whether you're advanced practice provider, to understand 
the value of properly obtained labs, but also really examining the current volume status of your patient. And so think about it. If you just had a patient where you recently bolused, you know, two liters of LR to a patient because they were significantly dehydrated, and then you quickly were to draw a lab, you could be in a state where potentially we have a diluted lab that would lead to a situation where we might see a sudden delta decrease, so a change in our hematocrit. And we might say, whoa, what happened? But the reality is that could just be a dilutional effect. Conversely, we have a dehydrated state where we have the red blood cells taking up a greater percentage of our total blood volume, where again, if we just turn them to a, return the patient to a normal volume level, we would then have a more accurate representation of their true hematocrit percentage. And so it's really important to think through these things, whether you're an advanced practice provider and you see a sudden change, looking through and thinking, okay, was this lab obtained correctly? Can I trust this lab? I think as a bedside nurse, it's really important to think about the fluid status of your patient, not only over the last 24 hours, but over the last six hours, the last two hours. Think about where you're drawing the line from. Are you pulling this sample out of possibly an arterial line where you're pulling back some saline as well that was in the line? Are you pulling from a central line from a port that's also right next to it rapidly infusing saline? These are things we want to think about because the important aspect here to grasp is that without good data, we cannot make good decisions in critical care. And in particular for the bedside nurses, one of the most critical roles you have is that gatekeeper of information and information integrity. And so it's critical to make sure that we can provide valuable, accurate labs to the providers in critical care so that we can make then informed decisions as we go about the critical care process. Now let's consider hemoglobin. So we talked about the hemoglobin molecules within our red blood cells. Now hemoglobin is typically measured in grams per liter or grams per deciliter. For example, you might see someone who they're thinking about transfusing and they, you see a measurement of seven grams per deciliter, or that could be 70 grams per liter. Hemoglobin plays an absolute critical role in oxygen delivery. But it also does a few other things that are quite interesting. About 20 to 25% of CO2 removal through carbaminohemoglobin is accomplished through hemoglobin. It also plays a critical role in nitric oxide release with vasodilation. It also helps with carbonic anhydrase, which again is critical in our process for maintaining our acid-base balance with our buffer system. I think this is one of those topics that we could go just so deep into when we look at hemoglobin, but understanding at a, at a, at a high level, it plays a critical role in our understanding of the importance of red blood cells. Now, as we mentioned before, we talked about a theoretical example of someone with a seven grams per deciliter hemoglobin level. Typically, adult males are going to have a hemoglobin level somewhere in the range of 14 to 18 grams per deciliter, and most women typically are around 12 
to 16 grams per deciliter. When this number is below that norm, we refer to it as anemia. And when this number is above our norms, we typically refer to this as polycythemia. Now, it's important to understand, though, why we're currently in an anemic state. And the reasons why could be exceptionally vast. We could be looking at someone with hyperthyroidism, cirrhosis, a hemolytic reaction. We could have massive hemorrhage. We could have a small hemorrhage. We could have a nutritional deficit, such as iron deficiency anemia. We could have sarcoidosis. We could be looking at kidney disease, splenomegaly, sickle cell anemia, bone marrow disease. We could have like rheumatoid arthritis. We could have leukemia and other blood cancers. Pregnancy can potentially induce an anemic state. I mean, there's so many different issues at play that can create this anemic state. And so it's incredibly important to understand, one, can we trust our lab? Is our lab correct? But then the next one is to understand what is our underlying reason leading into our state of anemia. Now, conversely, we might have a situation where we have an elevated hemoglobin level. And again, these are things where we have polycythemia vera, we have dehydration, erythrocytosis, diarrhea, eclampsia, burns, COPD. Certain heart failure states can create us having an elevated hemoglobin level above normal. So again, understanding our clinical picture for our trends in hemoglobin state is incredibly important. But it's also important to understand, typically today the general guideline is we're going to transfuse when the hemoglobin starts getting around 7 grams per deciliter or lower, or we're having a significant delta moving towards 7 grams per deciliter, or we've had a significant delta and we have some hemodynamic instability. These are the typical situations where we're generally starting to say, okay, we're going to do a blood transfusion. So we've decided, yes, we're going to give blood. We've decided that we trust our labs. The clinical picture indicates, yes, we need a blood transfusion. What happens next? You're going to send a type and screen. The first thing is understanding the patient's blood type. So that's an ABO and RH blood typing. And it's really quite amazing that there's actually right now 49 defined blood group antigens out there right now. And it's important to understand that each red blood cell has its own antigen type. So remember, as a refresher, an antigen is anything that can bind to an antibody or T cell receptor. Now, this in turn will activate a potential immune response. Now, thinking about the ABO blood type system, an A-type blood has A antigens on the outside of the cell, but in the plasma of a type A blood patient, they have type B antibodies. Now, a B blood type patient has B antigens on the outside of their cell, but has A antibodies in the plasma. AB has A and B antigens on the outside of the cell, but they have no antibodies in their plasma. Type O, now they have no antigens on the outside of their cells, but they have type A and type B antibodies in their plasma. Now, when we start thinking about the RH type, the positive or negative, what we're looking at are the unique carbohydrate chains. 
And these can be used for further specifications, specifically when we look at the screening. So the blood bank, what they're going to do is they're actually going to take the recipient, so the patient's plasma, and have it react with the potential donor's blood. On occasion, this can create a reaction, and if so, they're going to need to do further testing to determine the extent and severity of the reaction and if they need to get a better, perfect match of blood for this patient. Another thing that blood bank typically looks at, it's they're going to look at things like the patient's previous history. Have they had blood transfusions before? How many blood products have they received? Over time, as you receive more and more blood products, you can potentially build up more antibodies, which can be more of a concern for a significant reaction. Now, typically, if you do have a positive screen, then they're going to be looking for antigen-negative blood to administer. One thing that blood banks sometimes do is that they will do what's called a leukocyte reduction to help minimize the risk. Because whenever you pull red blood cells out of whole blood, typically there's still a certain amount of plasma in those red blood cells. And the plasma potentially can create a greater immune response. And so because of that, sometimes we can do some extra filtration to try and remove any plasma out of the blood. Now this blood in blood bank is typically stored about one to six degrees Celsius. And it's usually good for approximately 35 days. Different blood stabilizers can slightly extend the life. Typically, citrate is added as the primary anticoagulant. Okay, so what on earth is one unit of blood? One unit of blood is approximately 250 to 350 mils of red blood cells. Usually about 200 to 250 mils of plasma is removed during the donation, and so you're left with that 250 to 350 mils of red blood cells. Typically the hematocrit in this is around 65 to 80%. And like I just said, there's usually still a small amount of plasma that's still in the red blood cells. So typically 20 up to 100 mils. Now sometimes apheresis derived units can have, a, they're usually around 175 mils. The hematocrit's a little lower, usually 55 to 65%. But the theory behind that is we can potentially reduce some of the concerns with those transfusion reactions. One unit of blood raises hemoglobin, typically by one gram per deciliter, or it increases your hematocrit by approximately 3%. And I forgot to mention, but typically your hematocrit is three times your current hemoglobin level. Now blood typically arrives from blood bank at a chilled temperature. Most protocols say you need to transfuse that blood within four hours, meaning that blood needs to be in the patient within four hours. If not, then you need to get this in a blood cooler or send this back to blood bank. So it's really important to understand that when you request the blood, you're ready to give the blood to the patient, that you've already identified a line that's going to be used, and that you have a plan for how long you want to administer your blood over. So there's some transfusion basics for blood. I'm going to say right now, every hospital is different. Every unit is different. Every hospital and unit have different policies and different clinical situations will indicate when you give the blood, how fast you give it, and the exact protocol. In general, with the administration of blood products, I like to think of things in three tiers or categories. First and foremost is emergent. This is our mass transfusion 
situation where often we have very specific unit protocols we're going to be following. This really is its own animal in its own episode. The most important thing I think on a cursory glance of mass transfusion is the importance of trying to use a mass transfusion such as like a Belmont that has a warmer. Remember, cold temperatures decrease clotting. And because of that, if we're giving significant amounts of chilled blood products, often we can lead to situations where we're having decreased clotting. We're having more hemorrhaging in an already critical state. Number two, pay attention to your ratios. So that is the ratios of packed red blood cells to platelets, to plasma, to cryo. There's a lot of protocols out there that strongly suggest one-to-one-to-one-to-one ratios and repeating. The reason this is important is you can get caught up in the hectic moment of a mass transfusion event and you see the red blood pouring out of a patient into the chest tube where it might be and you start thinking, oh, okay, I need to give packed reds. And so you can quickly find yourself in a situation where if you've administered four to five units of packed reds and maybe one plasma, but the patient hasn't received any platelets, they haven't received any cryo. So in a patient that's already likely consumed and lost many of their clotting factors, we are now in a situation where we're further hindering that. So it's really important to consider the ratios. Another thing to really focus on is calcium. As we administer blood products, our calcium typically decreases because of that citrate in the packed red blood cells. And so as we start moving into the four to six units, we need to consider giving up to two grams of calcium to replace that. And again, calcium plays that critical role in the clotting cascade. So again, you're giving significant amounts of packed red blood cells that are chilled, and you're also decreasing your calcium. You're doing two things that can decrease your clotting in an already critically hemorrhaging patient. Now, moving on from our mass transfusion situation, I, I like to think of patients that are a little bit more unstable, but we have a bit more time to administer the blood. In these situations, I really like to focus, if I can, on the first five minutes of slowly administering the blood. Even if I'm using gravity to transfuse over 15, 20 minutes, or I'm giving it through a pump for 30 to 45 minutes, I try to, as best as possible, for the first five minutes, slowly increase the rate and then hopefully hitting my goal rate 10 to 15 minutes in. The goal again is that yes, we have an, we have an unstable patient, but we don't wanna cause the patient unnecessary harm if we can potentially catch a potentially fatal hemolytic reaction. And so again, that's where it's important in the transfusion process to use your judgment in looking at the clinical scenario. I think the final situation is, of course, our completely stable patient, that this is more of a chronic issue that we've decided to provide one unit to. And in this situation, I think often I'll start a infusion around 75 mils an hour. 30 minutes later, I'll bump it to 125. 30 minutes later, I'll usually bump it up to 200, 250, maybe 300, and allow the unit to finish. I've had a few times where I've seen the febrile reaction, and often this does present fairly early in the process, but not always. There are times when after you've finished the administration, you will actually see a reaction several hours later, and that's really important to understand. Now, once we've finished our transfusion, there are a few situations to consider. Now, we've briefly touched on the importance of calcium when we're giving multiple units of packed red blood cells. 
One of the most common transfusion-associated complications is circulatory overload, quite simply because we're suddenly introducing a fairly significant volume to the patient. And again, if our patient's already in a potentially fluid-overloaded state or they already have pulmonary edema, whether they might have a pericardial effusion, whether they have such significant third spacing that, that we're having areas with like a pleural effusion, any kind of sudden increase in fluid status can worsen that. And so again, always be on the lookout for circulatory overload. You know, when you're on a ICU with a significant amount of monitoring, this can be quite easy to catch because we can see changes in arterial pressure. We're gonna see an increase in CVP. We're gonna see an increase in filling pressures. We might see sudden changes that would indicate that maybe we're starting to see some pulmonary edema on our ventilator status. But if you're in a situation where we don't have a lot of invasive monitoring, then it can be really important to look for those signs of hypertension, for tachycardia. Do we see signs where our pulses are significantly increased? Do we see signs of peripheral edema? Do we see signs of jugular venous distension? Do we see those signs? Because sometimes we have to really start using those clinical skills when we don't have all of the invasive monitoring. Now, the most common reaction we have is called a febrile non-hemolytic reaction. This is the more common one. It's largely because of a cytokine release and that typically we're just able to stop the transfusion and we're able to manage. Some hospital policies will have situations where if it's minor, you might administer Benadryl or we might still complete the transfusion. It just depends on your hospital, but typically this is a less concerning reaction. The more concerning reaction we have is called an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. So this is where our host actually is going to destroy the red blood cells. This can be fatal up to 2% of the time, but the biggest issue is it typically induces a shock state. We can have DIC develop. This actually what happens is we activate the clotting cascade, specifically on factor 12. And because of that, you can also have just this really extensive cytokine release the important factor here is stopping the transfusion and managing the symptoms as quickly as possible before they progress too far. Now, there are two other situations that can happen that are quite similar, but also quite different. The first one is TACO. So TACO is a transfusion-associated circulatory overload. Now, this typically develops usually within about 12 hours, and it's largely just because of significant fluid overload and third spacing. It leads to pulmonary edema, peripheral edema. It can be quite difficult to distinguish between ARDS, especially if we already have a patient with some respiratory distress. This is something that you can often see not only with invasive monitoring. We can see this on chest x-rays. We'll see our O2 trending down, respiratory distress. We might see some sudden RV failure. Also, if you maybe have a little less monitoring, but we have labs, we might have increased ventricular stretching. And so this can increase our BNP. And so this is something that we might be able to catch on a lab. Again, the most important part here is decreasing that circulatory load, which can often be treated with Lasix and proper diuresis. Now, TACO is not to be confused with trial. So trial is a transfusion-related acute lung injury, and this can be pretty significant and is one of the more damaging issues we have with blood transfusions. This typically happens within about six hours, and it's immune-mediated, and it's really one of the leading causes of death with our blood transfusions. Now, it's typically activated by human leukocyte antigen, 
or human neutrophil antigens. There's thought that plasma transfusions can potentially induce this more likely than, than packed red blood cells. But remember, we can sometimes still have some plasma in our packed red blood cells leading to this concern. Now, this typically directly affects the pulmonary microvasculature. It's important to think about, too, our current situation. So if you have a patient already with circulatory overload, we already have a high inflammation state. We have underlying pulmonary issues. We already have a potential patient who's moving into an ARDS state anyways. This puts them at a significant risk for trial greater than you would a normal patient. And that's a consistent trend. Understanding your patient's clinical condition will greatly impact how you transfuse your blood products. We've covered a lot of ground today. I know it's a little bit over 20 minutes, but I appreciate you hanging in there. I think that we've been able to lay a decent foundation, especially if you're new to the critical care world, to understand why we give blood products, kind of the process we use behind it, and then, of course, some of our biggest concerns when we administer our blood products. The next episode following next week, we are going to be doing a similar episode, but we're going to be talking about fresh frozen plasma. Thanks for listening.